Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. This is episode 27 of the podcast. I'm Carlos Colazzo, as always, joined by Ben Badler. And just a few minutes before we started this podcast, the news came out um, that the MLB and MLBPA have agreed to a new CBA. Obviously, the details are still kind of unraveling. It has to be officially ratified. Um but it's pretty, pretty great news for people who are fans of baseball. Um, I don't know how much we'll be able to, to break down fully. As I said, it literally just happened before we hit record on this podcast. So we're all kind of still reacting to it. But since it's such big news, I figured that it would make sense to talk a little bit about the CBA negotiations, uh, what you've thought, Ben. And we also have JJ Cooper on the call. Um, he is uh, going to chime in on what he thinks about the negotiations and the deal um, as much as we really can comment. Um, I don't want to be too crazy here going into the details that we just literally don't know yet. And maybe we won't know for, for hours or, or maybe even days here, um, but a deal is agreed to. So that is cool. Um, ben, how are you doing, man? The rule five draft is back. Is that? <laughs> yeah, really? That's why JJ's here. He is actually in the car right now joining this podcast. So we'll, we'll try and get his audio uh, to a good level. But Ben, what are your what are your thoughts on this outside of any Rule 5 um, bonanza stuff? Do you have any takeaways from this? I know we've talked about the CBA a little bit in previous podcasts. We've, we've not really talked about it too much just because we actually had baseball going on. You've always been kind of talking about how we didn't need to get too crazy about it. Um, and it looks like we're still going to have a full season. So maybe you're right about it all along. Yeah, I think that's been my my hottest take on the lockout is that one, I mean, I'm, I'm very glad, obviously, that it's over. Um, but at the end of the day, we're getting, it sounds like, at least from the early reports, a full 162 game season. Um, I mean, it obviously sucks how, uh, you know, we lost a, you know, a fun offseason of transactions, although <laughs> these next few weeks could maybe be even more fun and it is uh, extremely um I, I don't know painful i'm sure it's painful for I, I certainly empathize with fans who are following along with the coverage and um you know there's been a lot of i think hysterical 
coverage of it. And I think a lot of people have done a very good job of, of coverage too, but uh, you know, every twist and turn and uh, every piece of information that's coming out is for a reason from one side or the other to try to slant things uh, in their favor and the PR battle that's going on. But um, just glad it's seems to at least at this point be over with, and we're going to get, it seems like a full 162 game season, which is, which is awesome. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the craziness that that is going to come shortly. JJ actually wrote a piece on the website about how wild um, just transactions in baseball would be as soon as the CBA is met. JJ, I wanted you to maybe expand on what we can expect to happen shortly. um, Or maybe even as you guys are listening to this podcast, maybe things are going to get crazy. Uh, But what are your thoughts on what happens next, JJ? And I just want to throw it out to you. What are your thoughts on the the CBA negotiations and and what we know right now? On the, on the CBA apparently being ratified, like I just can't, I'm, I'm trying to separate my personal feelings from kind of watching this, covering this, trying to interject, you know, useful information. And that is hard to do here because we all we all hear on this the reason that we work at baseball america is we love baseball and so there being a 162 game season is something that personally i i I guess i feel more relief than i do kind of excitement but i but there is a, a definite sense of relief on that because i really did think that if if they did not get something resolved this week then there would probably be a a pretty lengthy dug in uh, battle because of all the other things that that would entail as far as service time and expanded playoffs and both sides having pretty strong uh, leverage over the other side's desires wants. Now that it seems like, you know, again, I say seems like because it hasn't officially been ratified as we're recording this, but everyone expects that to happen as it, uh, you know, seems like this is now we're headed towards uh, an agreement. It does mean the next week is probably going to be as crazy as any that front offices and agents have can ever remember. Because, I mean, just to give a short laundry list of the things that are out there, there's major free agents who are still out there. There are minor free agents who are still out there. There are players who don't know if they're going to get a major league deal or a minor league deal with an invite to spring training. There are international major league free agents who can't get a visa until they sign a deal. And once they sign that deal, they may have to wait three weeks to get that visa, which is going to take them very close to opening day. And so what does that mean for, say, you're a pitcher? What does that mean? Or, you know, there's, and arbitration hasn't been done yet. We don't know. Maybe there's going to be a rule five draft. We have to hear about that. And they, we expect the Oakland A's are going to trade away a good bit of their roster. There's so many things that are going to happen in a very compressed period of time. And one thing I wrote about with that is, is that I do think that there is an advantage to front offices. I, I talk too much about process, but this is a, a front office who has the ability to make multiple decisions at the same time and kind of share some of that decision-making power, I think we'll have an advantage over this next week 
when compared to a front office where everything has to run through a couple of people or the owner has to sign off on every move of any significance, things like that, I, I think are going to be problematic when there's so many different decisions that have to be made so quickly. All right. And I think JJ, uh, his audio is probably um, puttering out for us on our end. So Ben, I, I wanted to talk or at least throw it out to you to talk about the international draft because we have a lot of people um, just who are following the podcast and are asking about the international draft. Um, there's really no big news on the international draft uh, outside of just, it became a sticking point in negotiations. The owners clearly want it. Um, it seems like the players are split on, on how they want it implemented, whether they want it implemented at all. Um, and it seemed like it was kicked down the road. Uh, they're going to have more time to discuss how an international draft would be implemented. I, I believe July is the deadline that we've heard um, for that international draft. But just because we've had so many people asking about it, it's a very popular topic that has been brought up. I wanted to throw it out to you. Is there anything new to be taken away from what we've seen come out of these negotiations? Do you have any new thoughts or new information on the international draft system? Just kind of wanted to throw this all out to you because Again, I do feel like a lot of this conversation is a little bit, um, a little bit too early. We we don't have anything in front of us to really break down or analyze or talk about, um, but it is at the at the forefront of people's minds. Yeah, it was presented as a sticking point. It seems in the negotiations, and I think the truth is, if certainly if you if you've been listening to our podcast since. <laughs> You know, we we started doing the first episode. Our podcast of, was about a year ago, I think, either late February or early March, so around this time. And our second episode is basically dedicated entirely to the international draft. So you you've been on this for a long time, and and even before we started the podcast, obviously. And and going back to the last CBA back in what in in 2016, I believe it was, or or maybe 2015. It was a you know, it, it was the previous CBA. Where, where that CBA almost got derailed at the end uh, because more and more attention was being put on the international draft. And then the union ultimately caved in and gave the owners a hard cap on international signings, which the owners, I'm sure, were absolutely thrilled with because the cost savings from that for them was significant <laughs> so they were they were thrilled with that but this was a big issue in the last cba and not only have, have we been talking about this um many times on on our podcast about how an international draft was going to come up in this cba and how the owners still wanted it this was something where i mean this has been public knowledge for nearly three years where i wrote that MLB was discussing a 20 round international draft. They were going to have hard slots. They were going to have a rotating draft order. You were going to be able to trade draft picks. And this was back in July, 2019 when I wrote this and they were at that time involved in midterm bargaining in during the previous CBA with the union. So the idea that this is some big surprise, <laughs> I, I really don't, I really don't understand that. I, I can see where maybe MLB officially presented it in a proposal to the union 
later on, but where the MLB PA or, or certain members of, of the players association are saying, Hey, we need more time to, to think about this. Um, that, that, that part, I, I don't quite understand. Um, you know, MLB has been pr- talking about this for years and years. It's been public. It's been presented to the union. MLB has been talking with its own club personnel, international club personnel who work on the grounds in Latin America about this draft. They've been working with the trainers in Latin America through their trainer partnership program that they have, as well as other trainers in Latin America who, who maybe are not even in the partnership program, but are, are just more influential uh, in in the Dominican Republic and in, in Venezuela in particular. And they've, they've been having these conversations in particular because of what happened in the last CBA where there was a lot of pushback from the trainers on MLB trying to implement an international draft in the previous CBA. So um, this, this has been ongoing for, for a while and more or less the exact, you know, or not the exact, but very similar construct of an international draft that was, that was presented in this negotiation has been out there publicly for close to three years now. So do you think that basically because it's been out, for, out, out there for so long, the MLBPA should have had a, a better understanding of what they wanted from their side and, and have a better response so we could get it negotiated and, and kind of solidified quicker? Or, or what's the takeaway there? I think the MLBPA is – through. We, we've talked about this before, right, Carlos? The, the MLBPA has sold out the rights of non-union members – historically in yes all, all of the previous cbas right so it's not oh the mlb pa doesn't care about dominican players or they don't care about venezuelan players they don't care about non-union members so the same way that draft picks you used to be able to sign major league contracts if you were a draft pick and you'd be you know, you could sign for, there was no hard cap on your bonus there's no official hard cap i guess on bonuses now for international or excuse me for uh, draft picks in, in the United States, but it it's a hard, it's effectively a hard bonus pool the way that teams have operated. Yeah. No one has gone under. over the 5% overage and, and induced those penalties. So it basically operates as a hard cap for the entire pool system. So you have that you have, you have minor league players right now who are going to make less than $10,000 this season. Is the MLB PA fighting for them? No. Because the MLBPA is looking out for the rights of the players in the MLBPA, which are the players on the 40-man rosters. So if you're not a 40-man roster player, essentially, it, you're just a bargaining chip for them. And we've seen it with the international players, too, in previous CBAs. First, they agreed to bonus pools, and you, you could, you know, it, it, well, it originally was you could spend anything on international players there was no there was no cap there were no bonus pools then mlb introduced uh or mlb and the players association agreed to in a cba in i believe it was in 2012 it started that you had a bonus pool that you could exceed but if you exceeded it you couldn't sign anybody for more than three hundred thousand dollars 
and teams generally adhered to their bonus pools for the first, at least initially, and then realized, oh, maybe we could sign like four years worth of players (laughs) in, in one class and blow past our bonus pool. And hey, we can actually still sign really good players for $300,000 in the Dominican Republic and Venezuela, Mexico. Um, so teams were just blowing past their bonus pools. I think the Padres spent like $80 million or something between um, bonuses and, and overage taxes. And, and Yoan Moncada alone was, I think, what, $30, $31 million, something in that area just on signing bonus. And then <laughs> the overage tax on top of that, that the Red Sox paid. So then in the last CBA, the, the union agreed to a hard cat. Now they pushed back on the idea of a draft, but again, the owners were thrilled because what they really wanted at that time from a draft was cost containment, which yeah. they were able to get. So I think the, the players association, I, I think there, there, there I'm sure there are players within the union who are still against the structure of an international draft. Like the, they, mm-hmm. they still want to have free agency available mm-hmm. for players, but I, I don't think this is a major issue for the broad majority of the players association. And I think they're trying to hold it back as one last bargaining chip that they have that they can negotiate away to the owners in exchange for something for their union members. Cause they've already sold off. <laughs> I mean, maybe there are some other things they can sell off for draft picks and, and maybe potentially something else that I'm not thinking of right now for international players, but they know this is one big thing that the owners want. It just, they, they also know that it has a lot more value to the owners than it has to the players, or I should say to the union members. And MLB also knows this. So it's, it, it's sort of in this weird <laughs> uh, limbo stage because do you, both sides are, are, are aware of this. Do you think that's just an inherent issue with the MLBPA because of, of who they're representing? Or do you think it's an issue of maybe Latin players being underrepresented in, in the leadership positions of the MLBPA? Because we've seen players like Francisco Lindor and David Ortiz come out publicly and make comments about uh, their thoughts on the international draft and how it is a complicated issue. And there needs to be time spent on it and and discussing it and, and not just using it as a bargaining chip. That's just my read of of their public statements. Now, maybe I'm simplifying, uh, but do you think that if there were more Latin players or players who came from this international system, that it would be thought about differently? Or do you think it's just a case of no, the MLBPA represents 40-man players, and so those 40-man players, uh, the issues that they're facing right now are always going to be what they're worried about, and they're going to continue to use amateur players from whatever source as bargaining chips. I mean, I, I think we, we see it with the draft in, in the United States too, right, where, hey, if, if the, the majority of players in the MLBPA went through the draft system in the United yep. States and still yep. they we just have said, perfect look, evidence for it. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> like we, we, look, we're, we're going to exchange, um, you know, a bonus pool system that significantly handcuffs the amount of money that amateur players in the draft 
are able to sign for. Uh, we went through that, you know, we, they, they, we've gone through that before our, ourselves as players, um, you know, for, for the players who, who went through that in, in the union. Uh, but at this point, it, it doesn't have a direct, um, you know, impact on them. So they're, they're a union that are, are representing the, the players who are in the union. So I, I don't really think it's so much tied to international players versus domestic players. I think it's just all, you know, all non-union members are, are more or less a, a bargaining chip for, uh, for the union. Yep. That makes sense. Do you have any other uh, CBA thoughts or international draft thoughts before we move on to some uh, actual baseball that's being played and some of the content that we have on the site? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean, there's just been so much baseball that, that has been mm-hmm. played, but I'm, I'm obviously glad we're having, you know, more, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're getting the 40 man roster prospects too back yeah. on Absolutely. back on the field. Yeah, I'm just excited that, I mean, the last few years have been so terrible for just player development in general with the missed time uh, with COVID. And then if we're dealing with a situation where some of the best prospects in baseball, guys like Julio Rodriguez, who are on a a 40-man roster, aren't going to be playing in the minor leagues. Like, I mean, how many times can you just get your development timeline interrupted? And and, I mean, that's that's got to have long-lasting implications on how these, these people are developing. So it's good news overall. Hopefully we'll be able to maybe talk a little bit more about some of the ramifications of this new deal in the future, but um, a lot of stuff has been going on in baseball outside of the the big league level stuff. Um, College baseball is in full swing. We're three weeks into the season now about to start ACC play this weekend Um, over on the website with our minor league content running out our top thirties for every team uh, in baseball drop. So if you hadn't already gotten a prospect handbook or the, Uh, The PDF version that you get by ordering directly through us, you can see those top 30s on the website. Um, So that's 900 scouting reports that you can read through to get ready for the season, which seems like we will be having um, pretty close to the normal schedule. Kyle has been doing position rankings for every um, position for prospects. I think those are all wrapped up. Um, And Ben, I know you're interested in the center field rankings in particular so we can talk through some of those um but what was it about the center field position group that was so fascinating to you this year we've got uh riley green topping that list 15 players deep um and we do star rankings for each of these position groups um five stars total this one is a three-star ranking just what are your thoughts on the the center field class that we have right now yeah i thought it was uh was it a three-star ranking i have it right now and it's three no you you thought it was a two-star ranking previously but i think unless it was changed it looks like a three-star ranking all right yeah it's uh i don't know what do, what, do you, what do you think of the group overall I, I thought it was actually um i thought it was a strong group i thought mm-hmm. at first the more you know i guess the more i look at it the more you could see a lot of guys who probably will have to move over to to a corner um Mm -hmm. you know riley green (laughs) being you know being one of them um yeah i think both riley green i mean i i have always been big on i think riley green is is probably better as a corner outfielder a lot of this is just depending on who else is on the team but i think that makes sense i think robert hassel is another one where if he's playing center field now yeah i could see it but i could also see him moving to a corner um, but, but I think maybe the biggest question mark you have with this group is 
once you get into the bulk of the list, there are a lot of players who like the Corbin Carroll, Robert Hassel, Michael Harris, Jason Dominguez, Colton Cal. Like there are a lot of players who are on this top 15 who are in the lower levels um, and haven't really proven a ton. So I guess the, the question marks about how close they are to the big leagues and how confident you can feel in their tools translating, I guess could be a question. I'm actually pretty excited about this group. I think like you, I maybe like it a little bit more than, than the star rating, but I also know Kyle, I don't know if Kyle was the only person responsible for putting star ratings, but I know he general in general is um, more inclined to go for the, the closer to the big league players. You can feel a little bit more confident in how their skills will translate. Um, but no, I like this group. I think guys like Corbin Carroll, Robert Hassel, Alec Thomas, I'm already on, on record as loving a lot. Michael Harris, like really toolsy guys. I still haven't given up on Austin Martin. Um, that's another one where he has some defensive question marks. Like, is he going to be playing center field? Probably not with that organization as long as Byron Buxton is healthy. But I think there are a lot of players that, that you can kind of point to even beyond that group um, of different profiles or different risk preferences that you could really, really like with this group, like a Riley Green and a Brendan Davis who are a little bit more polished, Alec Thomas, who is closer to the big league level, um, you've got defensive savants like Christian Pache and even really Michael Harris. Uh, and then you've got the really toolsy players like Jason Dominguez. Um, I think it's a, a pretty well-rounded group. Yeah, I, I think there's depth to it too. I mean, even like Sal Freilich is a, you know, a borderline top 100 prospect. I, I think it's what, 12 or, or 13 guys who are center fielders or at least center fielders right now who are in our top 100 um yeah, i think already. everyone but south relic or garrett mitchell and i think garrett mitchell has been in it before so yeah i mean i think both those guys you can make a case for them being in it i, I wouldn't feel strongly about keeping them keeping them out by any means it's um yeah I, yeah, yeah i mean i think freelick and mm-hmm. mitchell are, are both guys who I, I i could see moving up this this list um yeah, like you said, I think I think it's a pretty good mix of guys who are mm-hmm. closer to the big leagues, like a Riley Green or a Brennan Davis, and then um, you know some of the the younger guys like a, a Luis Matos or um, you know Jason Dominguez. Obviously, mm-hmm. still more of a a wild card than, than some of these other guys on on the list right now. It's kind of interesting looking at this list and then also seeing our the the 2022 draft class and seeing where where some of these really exciting center fielders could place on this list a year from now like guys like drew jones who is a bona fide center fielder and is is certainly going to profile that way for a long time and a guy like elijah green two of whom are are in the top five on our overall 2022 draft rankings elijah green maybe going to move towards a corner um, but i would imagine he starts his pro career off in center field like just think about where these two players fall in a list like this. Like, I mean, at this point, Drew Jones seems to be how he is talked about um, by all the scouts that I'm talking with as we kind of get the season going. And he's had a fantastic start to the season. It feels like the industry is more excited about him in the number one spot than the industry was a year ago, kind of looking at some of the shortstops and the Vanderbilt pitchers. Like just there, it feels like there's a more clear number one player than a year ago. Um, So I feel like if you were slotting Drew Jones into this list right now, 
you're probably looking at slotting him into that two or three spot somewhere around where Brendan Davis and, and Corbin Carroll are maybe, maybe comfortably ahead of both. Um, the way I try to think about it is like, where, where did Marcelo Meyer slot into this? He slotted 15, which would be above both Brendan Davis and Corbin Carroll right now in our top 100. So I, I don't know that I have any real case to make that he would be lower than that. What is your thoughts on where a guy like Drew would slot in? I'd have a hard time pushing him up there. I mean, it is, yeah, you can, you can say where we have Marcelo Meyer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do like Meyer more than Drew Jones. Oh, interesting. But, okay. But I, I also think, you know, that's, that would be Marcelo Meyer after, after both, you know, his, his senior season. Mm-hmm. And as a, and, and he had a good debut. All yeah. And, and pro his ball. pro debut. So yeah. it wasn't like, you know, we, we would not have had Mar- Marcelo Meyer that high in on March, you know, in March 2021. Right. So I like I, I would still take Corbin Carroll and Robert Hassel and, and Alec Thomas and those guys ahead of him. Um, but wow. I, I, I I do think I, I think he'd probably slot more into maybe the middle of of the top 100. I mean, if if you know, if, if like Luis Matos with the Giants mm-hmm. was available in the draft, like I, I think he'd go, you know, <laughs> top five picks right now. Obviously, you have a lot more history and track record with him facing pro guys. It's it's not totally fair to, you know, it's you not think like a he would? On... Oh yeah, yeah. I, I'm just thinking about, and maybe I, maybe this is just a, a function of where we end up slotting in most of the draft players, but I feel like the last three or four years, the top five players from the draft have been solidly top 75 on our top 100. I, th- I mean, I, I, again, like I, I think Drew Jones could get there. Yeah. If, if we see this from him the entire spring and everybody is still jumping up and down about him, <laughs> but like, you know, Luis Matos is a center fielder who's what was 19 last year and just mm-hmm. had a really, really good year. <laughs> in low a um a ton of bat speed hit for mm-hmm. power um good yeah, but, swing yeah but you could be better there. though ben come on get excited about the tools it could there. be <laughs> what i mean so what is so what 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 is kind of what seems to have separated him now compared to you know maybe where where he was in the fall from you know termar johnson and mm-hmm. elijah green and then some of the other college guys that we have stacked yeah, toward the, the uh, well, he he's just hitting really well. He's hitting for power, which is something that that scouts kind of projected for him moving forward last summer, just based on his body type. I think he's getting stronger now, and scouts are seeing that happen. Uh, the fact that he's hitting so well, I think, is is giving scouts more of a a confidence in his pure hit tool. Although, I mean, last year we we're talking about him as as the best pure hitter in the class outside of Termar, like in that range. So I don't think people really questioned the hit tool to that level. I, I think it's just, you're starting to see him grow into some of that strength. You're seeing it translating games early this season. People love the body. People love the bloodlines. We can get more into a bloodlines conversation because this, this class is so stacked with players of that type. And then if you look at his supplemental tools, like you could put, you could put seventies on his run, his fielding, his arm. Like it's not, it's not outside of the, the realm of possibility to have those grades on him. I've, I've talked to scouts who have double plus grades 
on all of those supplemental tools. So if you think he is a plus hitter, and if you think he's going to get to above average power, maybe you think he's going to get to plus power. Then you're talking about a guy who's got three seventies on his card and a couple pluses and above average for his hitting and power. That's an explosive player. And I don't know. I mean, obviously, like you said, he's still in high school. A lot of these guys we're talking about have, have done it at the minor league level. But man, that that's a lot of upside to be passing up for, for a guy who, I mean, his tools are good across the board. I mean, I'm looking at Luis Montes right now and it's above average tools are better across the board. And maybe you would just rather take that skill set for a guy who's already done it in the professional levels. But man, I, I would be very surprised to hear anyone take Luis Matos over. And, and maybe this is just a function of me talking to amateur scouts much more. Maybe, maybe you could pull amateur scouts on who they'd rather have in pro scouts and you'd get wildly different views on that. But yeah, the feedback on Drew so far is, is quite loud. Yeah. I mean, like, like Luis Matos is just one example, but I, I think he fits into mm-hmm. that range in that, you know, mid tier group of center fielders that we have right now. And then, yeah, if, if he keeps this up and, 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 you know, especially if he signs and goes to, you know, whether it's Florida or Arizona in the complex league and just annihilates everybody there, <laughs> you have a little bit more confidence and, and conviction in, in just the pure hitting ability with, with wood against pro competition, then, then, yeah, I mean, we could see him moving up to where we have like, uh, you know, Meyer or like a Jordan Lawler or somebody like that. We could, I, I could certainly see him entering uh, or, or at least going into the mm-hmm. top 100 in, in, in a higher range. But um, so I, I guess, I, where do you think of like how Jordan Lawler is placed on the list? Cause how many games did he get in before he got injured? He only had one or two, right? He didn't have that much playing time in the minors yeah, like, he, like where do you view where he's at now versus how you would slot in a guy like drew or termar or elijah green i guess with with termar and elijah green where do you think or let's i guess we can keep it just with elijah since we're talking about outfielders with uh like compared to where lawler is yeah or just right compared now. to the center field group I, we can expand it to whatever you want really but i'm just trying to think through now where i would place some of these other premium 2020. Yeah. Well, would prospects. you take, I mean, I know you love Jordan Lawler. Would mm-hmm. you take Lawler or, or Drew Jones right now? Right now? Oh man, that's tough. That's really tough. I, I think I would probably go Drew, but I don't want to be a, a victim of like recency bias. And I know that it that's definitely what's happening because I'm talking with people about how Drew's playing. I'm watching Drew hit home runs. I'm talking with scouts about what he's been doing. And I just haven't talked to the people about Jordan Lawler um, in, in that long of a period. I think, I think the upside is similar or better for Drew. I mean, the shortstop versus center field profile is interesting. The supplemental tools certainly feel louder with Drew. Although Jordan... I saw him hit much better in person than I did Drew, I believe, but they're very close. So now, now I'm like questioning myself and, and I'm questioning how, like where I really view these players because the shortstop does move the needle for me a little bit. I think I would slightly lean towards Drew though, just because of, because of how the industry seems to be viewing him in this class, which is a very good class at the top compared to how they were talking about this group of players last year. Maybe it's as simple as that. And maybe that, that the fact that like it does seem like there's there's a clear number one player that's kind of forming this year versus last year when it was a collection of players who were kind of jostling for that number one spot 
is know. is the is the because you talked about supplemental tools obviously mm-hmm. elijah green is not yeah. lacking absolutely in, in those either but it does seem like drew has separated himself at least at this point in the industry consensus from elijah green is that just the confidence in his bat or or is it some also just the on the defensive side too where drew is a potential gold glove center fielder too yeah i think it's probably both i mean most people seem to think that his hit tool is quite a bit better than elijah elijah's still going to have some swing and miss and there are a lot of people who think that that green might wind up being a power overhit bat who you're just going to have to live with some strikeouts with where no one really seems to think that's what drew's going to be it seems like most people think above average or plus hitter with power and then for drew it, it's as close to a no doubt center field profile as i've seen it's like him and pete crow armstrong are the two and, and drew jones physical tools are, are much louder than than pete crow armstrong's were he's a much more dynamic runner um so i think just the safety of knowing that he is going to be a, like a locked in defensive value at a premium position and you have the confidence of the bat to ball with the physical projection you don't have the now power that Elijah Green has, but you also have fewer question marks. I think those kind of all together, I haven't found anyone this spring who's put Elijah at the same tier with Drew or, or above him. It's, it's been consistently Drew is kind of at the top and then Tamar and Elijah for, for the prep bats. And, and I think too, that the Tamar feedback that I get is he just is increasingly more polarizing than I would have expected for a guy who hits as well as he does. So I'm really curious to see, whether or not that's a function of just like hesitancy from the industry of that profile, or if it's because um, I have heard that, that he's been tough to see the spring because some of his games have gotten canceled when some higher ups have, have tried to go in and see him. But like we've talked about for four, before, for me, Termar is just such a, such a guaranteed bat that I don't really question it too much, but that's kind of how I view it right now. So you don't think Drew Jones is overrated is what you're saying? Oh, I mean, how how much are we hyping him up? I guess. Like, well, I, you you saw the video. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think that was such a fantastic video. By the way, that, that was for those incredible. who haven't seen it, like Drew is playing a high school game. He's at bat. Like the opposing crowd is chanting "overrated" at him, and mid chant, he hits an absolute bomb, home run, dead center, circles the bases, uh, hushes the crowd, does the little finger in front of his mouth to hush the crowd. Uh, it was, it was fantastic. No, I don't think he's overrated. Now we've talked about prospect hype before. Maybe he'll get to that point where people are comparing him to like a Bryce Harper or something, but no, I don't, I don't think so right now. I think he's just a very good top prospect in the class that really, I mean, checks all the boxes that you would want him to check. And his, his father was a longtime big leaguer, um, and one of the best defensive center fielders. And it seems like he is at least has the tools and the ability to follow in his footsteps pretty well. Yeah, how much how much does that do you think matter either to you or to scouts making a, a decision on Drew Jones that he has those big league bloodlines that his dad was an all-star because and I mean borderline Hall of Famer too. But I mean we, we've just seen so many guys come up recently who have big league bloodlines and then this draft is obviously no different not just yeah. drew jones but i mean geez if we could even talk about elijah green's <laughs> bloodlines his dad played in the nfl but whether yeah. it's 
Oh, Jackson even, Holiday or yeah, but I was about to say even beyond those two, Jackson Holiday and Justin Crawford, both two players who are, who are rising early this spring. We had a, a stock watch this week that went up. It's on the site now, um, talking about their progress and how they're tracking. It seems like they're they're being increasingly viewed as like consensus first round talents. Um, Jackson Holiday, obviously the son of Matt Holiday, Justin Crawford, the son of Carl Crawford. Uh, Cam Collier has had a really good spring. And Juco, uh, the son of Lou Collier, uh, Jace Young, Jace Young, one of the top college players in the class, his brother, obviously being drafted with the Rangers. Like there is a lot of bloodlines in the class and it, it, it matters to some extent. I don't know the degree to which it moves the needle for players because at the end of the day, there's still different people, but you look at a guy for me, like I look at how, Bobby Wood Jr., his career has, has tracked so far. And, and everyone cites him being around the game since he was very young as a very key factor in, in how he was able to prepare and to train and to develop as a prospect when he was younger. I think there's certainly something to having those resources your entire life. And not even from like a financial component, but just being around the game at that level, it has to change your mentality about how you prepare for the game. Uh, like just knowing what's necessary and what professional baseball players do on a regular basis to get to that level and to sustain that sort of performance. I don't know how that doesn't change your mentality about the game. So just, just being around the game at that level for your entire life seems like a massive benefit that players um, like Jackson Holiday and Justin Crawford and Collier and all these players that we're talking about have benefited from. I don't know how much to factor it into to like a value of a player or where you rank a player, but everyone that I talk to in the industry values that to some capacity. It's very hard to quantify that. But when I hear people talking about how much it, it matters to them, it certainly rubs off on me like, oh, this is clearly something that's important um, for these, these evaluators and these scouts. I would be curious to know like how that is quantified and, and how much that does move the needle or whether it's something akin to like makeup where it's a factor, but you're not just going to draft the kid because he's got great makeup. And, and there are other players in this class who have the same sort of bloodlines who we're not talking about because their talent and their skill at this point is just not at this level. So I think it's a small factor that is meaningful to some degree, but at the end of the day, you still have to have the skills and show the talent in your own right. Is that a long way of saying, I don't know. Well, yeah, I think it's, and it, you bring up a point too, where it's, it's, I think it matters to a certain extent. And it's also hard to tease out how much of it is nature versus nurture, right? Yeah. Like the point you made about, like, you know, if, if you're the son of a professional athlete, like cl clearly Elijah green, <laughs> who is the son of, you know, a really good former NFL player has physical talent that he inherited from from his father um so i i think you know there's certainly a, a dna component to it but also like you said how much of it for players is just growing up around the game growing up around um you know having your dad as you know who, who probably is coaching you too to, to some extent um you know, having somebody like that around to, to help you to being around big league clubhouses or, or even minor league clubhouses, just being able to 
be around the game all the time. Um, I, I think that that part of it is is a factor, but at the same time, it's it's you know I don't think anybody is going like we're not going to see I don't think Jackson Holiday go above Termar Johnson right <laughs> in the draft. Nobody's just going to yeah take somebody because of their their name or, or who their dad was. Exactly. Uh, but but yeah, I mean I, I think it is a factor and and probably more of a factor the younger you are too right so like if you're scouting international players i think it's more of a a factor where you're looking at players when they're 15 and and 16 and trying to project them and you're you just have less to go on than you do with a you know a a 21 year old college player or or even an 18 year old high school senior um so I, i think that's in in that area it probably becomes more of a more more of an influential factor but like you said ultimately you have to evaluate each each player on his own merits and it's just going to be one smaller component i think of of the yeah. overall equation yeah, the nature versus versus nurture thing is really interesting too because you even talk about guys like robert moore who i would throw him into this bloodlines conversation mm-hmm. Because he is, he has been around the game at a high level, just because he doesn't have the same genetics and like athleticism and just physicality and size that a guy like Elijah Green does. I think a lot of those, those assets that you get from having your dad be a, a heavy hitter in an organization for your entire life, you still get a lot of those benefits, even if Dayton Moore wasn't some elite athlete in his time that, that you can kind of point to with Robert. Like it's a different physicality that we're talking about with these players. But I think the fact that Robert has been around the game his entire life and just has insights into the game that a random kid who, whose family has nothing to do with the baseball industry just wouldn't be able to get that matters and that has some sort of impact if the player wants it to, to make an impact. Now, maybe there are plenty of players who, who have had access to all these resources and just don't have the mentality to take advantage of it or or don't care. But in every conversation I've had with, with scouts about Robert Moore, scouts are praising how he goes about the game and his makeup and his baseball IQ. And that's certainly correlated to him being around the game his entire life because of, of what his dad does. So it's not a, just a, like a DNA or genetics conversation. It's, it's some combination of both. And I think the point you make about projecting younger athletes is, is a good one as well, because it does sort of provide you with a, a rough blueprint or a roadmap for what you could see this player tracking towards if, if you have watched his, his father's career 20 years before. So that, I think that's a good point to make when you have to do a lot more physical projecting on a player because he's 15 or 16. I mean, even with Jackson Holiday, last year, one of the reasons why Jackson Holiday was such a common sleeper, not even a sleeper pick, but a he was a common pick by evaluators to shoot up draft boards was because people know what his father looks like at physical maturity. Mm-hmm. They know that he has not yet reached his physical maturity. And, and you look at his frame, um, just how he's built, and you can see like, how much bigger and stronger he can get and he is starting to do that and fill into that frame and he's taking a very advanced set of skills and and bat to ball ability and instincts with the game and now all of a sudden 
he is adding a lot of that strength and physicality that you could see coming, probably just looking at him, but you could definitely have a lot of confidence was coming when you look at his father um, and how he's developed and kind of just seeing that, that the players are going to follow in their parents' footsteps, just physical physicality wise in a lot of situations. So the fact that he is blowing up, isn't surprising anyone in the scouting industry. And I think that that whole bloodlines conversation, just knowing what Matt holiday looked like certainly had to lead to, to that as well. I mean, that was Fernando Tatis Jr. Part of how, part of why the White Sox made a bet on him when he was an amateur. I mean, I, I promise you, for the Fernando Tatis Jr. that you see today, that, that is not really at all close to what we saw from him when he was an amateur. And I give the White Sox, well, I give the White Sox international scouts a lot of credit. Uh, because they signed him for, I think it was $700,000. And I mean, at, at the time when he signed, he was this lanky, gangly 16 year old kid who did not have a lot of power, was not really a runner, um, kind of awkward looking, uh, thought maybe he'd go to third base. There were, you know, I'm sure some people who liked him at the time. But there were a lot of international scouts who were, you know, were not really all that in on him. I saw him uh, before he signed. I was not crazy about him. Uh, and and frankly, like the White Sox, he was not their biggest signing that year. I think they gave Franklin Reyes, Fran Mills' uh, little brother, uh, about twice as much <laughs> money. But pretty, you know, within a year and certainly two years after he signed, he just he filled out he got stronger he got faster he had more power the extra strength he had helped keep his swing together and and you can see too that his you know his instincts for the game are are outstanding you can tell he's he's a baseball rat i mean it, it you know you don't have to have a a uh, come from a, a baseball family to have that in you like Tamar Johnson. Yeah, I was about to say Tamar's um, a perfect example of that. Is you know is a great example. You know his older brother plays in in college, but it's you know it's not the same as you know your dad was you know hit two grand slams in in one inning, right? But um, but I, I you know that was part of why the White Sox were were in on Fernando Tatis Jr. So I, I think you know the younger you know for the younger you are, and I think that is more impactful. Um, but but like you said too, a lot of it is just the the nurture component too. Where I'm I'm sure Jack Leiter, being the son of Al Leiter, I, you know I'm sure some of it was you know, you know I'm sure there's some DNA component to it as well. But you know just having you know both the financial resources that come with having your dad being a a longtime uh, big leaguer, uh, but also a, a your dad just be a really good uh, former major league pitcher just provides you a lot of yeah. Um, access and, and knowledge, not just to, to him, but to, um, you know, to be able to pick the brains of, mm -hmm. of other, you know, former big league players and, and coaches too. Yeah. I, I think baseball, at least it seems that baseball is unique in this standpoint because with other sports like the NFL and the NBA, they are much more reliant on just raw athleticism and, and natural ability in that sense. Whereas baseball, you don't have to be, a physical freak or an athletic freak to succeed at a very high level in this sport it is such a skill driven sport. It, it seems like it's a more, much more of a skill driven sport than, than those two. And so 
whether it's just knowing how to practice from a young age or just knowing, just getting better coaching uh, from, from a parent or from being around coaches your whole life. I feel like getting those reps in from a young age, whether that's with the reps you need from a swing standpoint or the mechanical cues and feedback that you get as, as a Jack lighter, when you're surrounded by pitchers at the big league level and all of the pitching coaches and just people who are around you in a day-to-day life that you're not going to get access to in another life circumstance. Like those can pay off much more. Like if, if you're an NBA, if you're an NBA or an NFL player, I don't know that all the reps in the world are going to overcome physical limitations that you were just born with. Right. It seems like there's much more of a, there's much more impact you can make on your own, your, your own career. That's, that's in your hands, you know, that, that you can actually control. Whereas in the NBA and the NFL, it's like, if you don't, if you don't reach this baseline of athleticism or physicality, it's just very tough. There are a few players who are not elite athletes in those leagues. Am I simplifying this too much or, or am I, am I making an analogy that's a little too surface level here? I think you're asking the wrong person when it comes to any sport outside of baseball to give you a <laughs> all a baseball answer. only baseball for Ben. My yeah, my NFL and NBA knowledge probably cut off around 2009, yeah. 2010. So well, just looking at kind of like the the NFL draft combine, like the measurables of athleticism matter a ton in that sport where we don't really even care about that in the MLB. Like teams are certainly looking at athletic testing data. And I think that stuff is being incorporated more and more as we get more of it. And as, as teams understand what is useful and what correlates, but we have an entire NFL draft combine where people are freaking out about athletic measurables. And I think those measurables do correlate to success in the NFL. And maybe I'm speaking out of turn here um, because I certainly know more about baseball than, than those sports, but just the fact that the baseball is less, less, athleticism dependent makes me feel like these benefits of being around the game are more meaningful in the sport, mm. but that, that's kind of where I'll leave it, I guess. Well, I mean, are there a lot of juniors throughout like the, the NBA or, or the NFL? I mean, my lack of knowledge there is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> obvious, but... I know just because I, I follow LeBron, like there is a list of players that LeBron has played against their fathers and their sons so there's some out there i don't know the extent or like how common or how rare it, it, it feels somewhat common in the nba i don't know enough about i don't know as well about the nfl if that's the case or not what about what about brothers you mentioned jace young mm-hmm. how, how much of an impact does that have i mean i i think that part is there you know there probably is some DNA component to it, but I, I think also just having an older brother who has played professional I baseball. I don't remember what player it was in, in conversation with, but I remember having a conversation with um, a scout about how they really liked younger brothers, younger siblings in general, because those right. younger siblings are always playing with their older brothers. So they're, they're facing much better competition than you typically would at that age. Like you always hear stories about how these young phenoms oh, when they were four years old, they wanted to play with their nine and 10 year old brothers. So they were out there and, and getting dominated when they were younger. And those, those reps really just translated and allowed them to add polish and a refinement to their game sooner. And they just had, they had to adapt or, or they were just going to be 
miserable the entire time. So I really yeah. do think there is something to that. And again, I've had conversations with scouts who value that. So that makes me want to in turn value it. Yeah. And you learn from their experience. I mean, I think back to like Justin Upton was how he got noticed so early on in part because his older brother <laughs> was such a, a prominent draft prospect a few years ahead of him. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard the same thing with, with a younger brother. Um, I, I, I think it's, I think sometimes it can work against a player too. Absolutely. If, if you have a, an older brother who kind of flopped <laughs> for, I, I think, and I think too much gets made of that where, where you get people getting gun shy or just yeah, hesitant yeah. about the younger brother. I think it can work the opposite way too, though. And there are a couple of players that I'm thinking of, I'm not going to mention them, but like if you do have an older brother who is really good and the younger brother for it just isn't at that level, I think sometimes mm. those players can get the benefit of the doubt where you're like, Oh, his brother was so good though. And you're like, well, for all these reasons, he's just not the same as his brother. So I think it can work in both ways where, where maybe a younger brother will get overhyped because their, their elder sibling was just so good. Oh, I see. So I, so I think it probably can work both ways for you and it's, it seems detrimental both ways. So there, there is something about the pressure of having someone who's gone before you in your family. The one that sticks out to me too, and this is always weird was Bo Bichette. So mm -hmm. his, and he's a, it was weird because his, you know, his older brother, Dante, Dante Bichette Jr. Um, was a, you know, a big draft pick. I think it was a supplemental first round pick for, the Yankees about 10 years ago and yeah, actually he was got drafted off. in the, it says first round 51st pick on baseball reference, 2011 draft. They must mean like, what a uh, that, that's gotta round. be supplement. Yeah. Supplemental pick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the supplemental picks there. I mean, there's a couple <laughs> drafts where the supplemental <laughs> rounds are just massive. <laughs> it's he actually got to a good start in, in the Gulf coast league, but then pretty quickly after that, um, you know, the reviews were, were not quite as, as good. Um, so I, I almost feel like that held like almost people almost held that against Bo. It really seems like there were a lot his... of factors for, for why people didn't like Bo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there was, you know, different reasons, mm -hmm. um, you know, just the way his, his swing worked, his, you know, his body and defense, at least the summer, uh, before his, his draft year, but it almost seems like they were people who were holding, you know, the, the results of his older brother against him, which was really strange because his older brother is Dante Bichette Jr., right? The son of Dante Bichette, yeah. former big league, I think all-star. I don't have his B-Ref page up in front of me, but, you know, a pretty good major league, longtime major league player. So, um it, that was just like a weird, I think, example where he had bloodlines in kind of tugging him in, in both different yeah. directions. He was a, a four-time star in Silver exactly. Slugger. Yeah. So, yeah. So if, if you were a, a baseball prospect, would you want to, would you want to have those people who went before you, whether it was a, a father who was a big leaguer or an older brother, or would you want to just pave your own path? Because I feel like we've talked about all the benefits. It certainly seems like it comes with its uh, its negatives as well. Yeah, I think the, I think having like junior, I mean, I've never obviously been through anything remotely like that, but I almost feel like if you're, if you have the same name as your father and your name is junior, it almost like puts more 
pressure on you. I feel like to, I mean, we somehow drew into that into that conversation. It's the same name, pretty uh, much. Oh, I don't know. That's a good it. one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like if you know if you're Vladimir Guerrero Jr., I mean, think I mean Vladimir Guerrero is a Hall of Fame player who was just one of the most electrifying players. I mean, we've ever seen. He was so many people's favorite players, so that the expectations had to have been enormous on him. And I mean, clearly he inherited his his dad's hand eye coordination but the you know the shape of his <laughs> his skill set is is very different in terms of the other mm. tools as you know with, you know he doesn't run like his dad he doesn't throw like his dad but you know you and, and you know and he was the number one international prospect at the time so there, there had just have been so many expectations on him but yeah i mean overall i think it's it's a great thing that you're you know you're growing up in a household where you know, you're reaping both the financial rewards growing up of having your dad played in in the big leagues and and also just all of the other benefits like like we talked about that that come along with it. Would, would you rather just be, you know, Carlos Colazo trying to make it <laughs> on uh, <laughs> on your own through you know, there, or, with, or would you rather be the with, with no a... disrespect to, to my parents who I love dearly. Yeah. I, I definitely choose the, the big league bloodlines. Come on. Yeah. When you're growing up around the game, that sounds, it's just an advantage that you just can't get otherwise. And yeah, no, definitely. If, if I was a baseball prospect, you could choose if this is uh, create your own career mode and MLB the show. I'm definitely choosing the bloodlines family to start from. Absolutely. Really quickly. Cause I just pulled up uh, both of Vladimir Guerrero's B ref pages um, who so I'm discounting um, Vladimir Guerrero Sr.'s 1996 season where he just played in nine games. Um, that was his age 21 season. Vladdy Jr. got to the big leagues in his age 20. So you could say that he was ahead in that sense. But who do you think first three seasons? So this is one shortened season for Vladdy Jr. because of COVID, but otherwise, and I guess one 90 game season for Vladimir Guerrero Sr. Who whose offensive numbers? do you think were better? Do you have a, an intuition either way, or do you know their careers enough to, to say? Because I wanted to see who was off to a better start, if, if Vladdy Jr. was off to a better start or if he was behind. Because In terms of WRC pull like OP, or OPS plus? I'm, not, I'm on BREF, so we can use yeah. OPS plus. Um, and just kind of overall slash line numbers, I'll run through both. But do you have an intuition either way? I would bet if you're just looking at the averages, probably... So I'm going to look at triple slash and ops plus if that helps yeah. you. We can also include like home runs. We can include whatever stats you want, actually. Yeah, I was going to say the rate stats. I might lean toward junior just because his his 2021 was just so outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that was what I was thinking as well. But his his numbers are actually worse, although slightly worse. But the rate stats are much more in favor of Vladdy Senior, and I mm. think we kind of. Like Vladimir Guerrero was very good his first two years, but I do think it is worth mentioning like his 2021 was a big step forward for him. Um, so Vladdy Jr., his his triple slash line is 289, 367, 517 with a 137 ops plus for his first three years. And Vladdy Sr., his line is 316, 370, 571 with a 142 ops plus. 
So like comparing the leagues to each other, it's pretty similar offensive production for um, the competitive environment they're in, but the rate stats, the triple slash category stats are, are pretty heavily in favor of, of the older generation here. And the home runs are also in favor as well. 91 home runs over that period in more games, 409 games, 91 home runs and 72 home runs and 344 for Vladdy Jr. I need who, had more, who had more stolen bases? Um, Vladdy Jr. has five and Vladdy Sr. has 28. So not, not so close in that area. <laughs> Was it really only 28 though for Sr.? Yeah, 28. He had four, then nine, then seven. He didn't get his first double-digit stolen base season. Oh, excuse me, that was caught. Three, 11, 14. Then he had nine in 2000. In 2001 and 2002 is really where he went crazy with 37 and 40. But he, he yeah. never topped 20 after that. So just a few years of, of heavy stolen bases. Other than that, it was basically 15 or fewer. Is that right? Yeah, I feel like people just remember. I don't remember him being a, a huge speedster. Am I just forgetting that? That's exactly what I was going to say. Is I feel like people remember like Angel's career. <laughs> like, yeah. Vlad Sr. That's when definitely what I remember. Bigger and heavier and, mm-hmm. and still really good, right? He was, you know, still a big time power hitter. Yeah, his, I mean, his ops plus he was from like MVP one. He was basically like a 139 or better ops plus guy from. 1998 to 2007. So really the first three years of the angels, he was still first four. He was a 130 ops plus in 2008. I mean, it, it sustained for a, a long time and he was an all-star from his age 29 through age 32 seasons. So. Yeah. I, I think people forget just how maybe athletic he was and how, mm-hmm. how much he, how well he ran just judging him from his sort of a, later career we should we should do this one too who who do you think is going to wind up with more total career war and we can pick b war or we can do an average of b war and f war and i guess we'll have to track this for the next 20 years but do you do you want to take a guess and and i'll throw out the b war right now for vladi senior he had 59.5 b war over 16 seasons I can just go to Fangraphs really quickly and see what his number was for that as well and let you know where Vladdy is at. So far in Vladdy's career, he has 9.5 baseball reference war for his first three seasons. I mean, I, I think he, he has the talent to get past where his dad is, but mm-hmm. anytime we're talking about somebody who's played two-ish <laughs> seasons, in the big leagues, um, I'm going to take the under on him going past 60 yeah. career war. There's just so many things that can go wrong. I mean, health obviously is, is a big one, but yeah. um, I, I, you know, I, I think he has the talent to do it, but if I had to make a bet, I'd, I'd, I'd bet the under on that. Okay. One. I'll bet the over just to make things interesting. Okay. Yeah. Check back on episode uh, 4,322. <laughs> yeah, we'll link that episode in the show notes. Um, the, I mean, the Fangraphs war numbers are pretty similar. It's 54.5 um, Fangraphs war for senior and 7.3 for Vladdy Jr. So not, not too much of a discrepancy there between those. But yeah, I'll take the over. I mean, I do think, like you said, I mean, the odds are against him with, with everything that can go wrong, with injury, with depreciation of skills. Um, but I think he's got everything that you would need to, to top that war total. And I'm a, I'm a big Vladdy Jr. fan, you know, unlike you, Ben, you're, you're not a Vladdy Jr. fan at all. So I'll take the over. Are you, are you just betting on the bloodlines here? Yeah, I'm betting on the bloodlines. <laughs> Certainly what I'm betting on. 
Uh, ben, you, you've been busy on your end putting out some high school rankings. Do you want to talk about those at all? You've got 2023 and 2024 updates on the website. Uh, any standouts or, or anything about how you view those classes right now? Because this is the first time in BA history that we've done lists like this. And it's, it's fantastic for, for our subscribers. It's great for me because you're doing so much of the heavy lifting on getting all these follows and the history of these players before uh, I really start bearing down on them for the draft. So what's that process been like for you? And is there anything to, to speak about on the podcast for those classes or should you just uh, have people go read your lists? Yeah, I, I think it's been, I think it's been great for, for us and to, like you said, be able to just build out deeper history on these players for upcoming draft classes i mean the 2023 draft is just a little over a year away right like we're still talking about the uh you know we're, our main focus is on the 2022 draft but because of the way the calendar works now the draft is is going to be what mid late july this year right yeah middle or, of july i think the date yeah. that i had plugged in we still don't have an official date but you can kind of read the tea leaves of, of where the MLB draft league is and just assuming it's still going to be with the all-star game. I think the date that I am guessing it's going to be is July 17th um, through 19th. That would put it like a similar schedule to last year in the all-star break after the first leg of the draft league and in a couple of days before the second leg of the draft league starts. So that's kind of an estimate. And so I'm assuming um, barring some crazy changes in the CBA, I'm assuming it'll be similarly in like mid July for these other draft classes. Right. So if, if you're, you know, a scouting director or, or an area scout and it's, you know, you, you've got to focus your time, especially on, on the upcoming draft class. So for 2022, that's really got to be your main focus up through July. You know, maybe you'll go to, you know, the Cape or, or try to get a head start on, on some of these underclass guys, but um, by the, you know, by, by the time the draft is done, a lot of the summer travel ball schedule is, is behind you. You know, you do have big events, obviously after that, the perfect game national showcase, you have um, East coast pro area code games, some, some different all America games. Um, but the, it, it, it's really, you know, I think a lot more helpful to just have deeper history on these guys where, you know, sometimes we see a guy struggle too during the, you know, the summer of, of his draft year or the spring leading up to, I mean, Dylan Cruz, right. Is a pretty good example of, of that. Um, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, if you had more and more history on Dylan Cruz, then, you know, somebody would have made a more, um, you know, aggressive push to to try to sign him out of high school. But uh, I, I think just having more history on on these players is going to going to lead to making better decisions on mm -hmm. on players on on draft day. So you're not trying to, you know, cram a ton mm -hmm. of, you know, things in in a in a window where you just don't have the time to, yeah. um, you know, to spread yourself in. And, and we're seeing, I think teams are starting to, um, you know, respond to it with more underclass scout 
coverage too, like yep. bringing in people who are who are targeting um, who, whose jobs are to focus on the the top underclass players in in the country. That that seems like such a great benefit, and, and I was hoping this is where it would would kind of steer. I remember having conversations with with scouts and directors a few years ago about how they were operating with the underclass, if they put a bunch of attention on it. And, and it does seem like the obvious solution is to just hire more scouts and have them focus on these underclass players, because yep. in, in one sense, you're getting a lot more information and you're, you're extending the tail of your, your track record with these players, but also you're basically developing a pipeline of scouts and the, the people who are watching these underclass players, they're, are lower stakes to it at the end of the day. You have several years still where you can bear down. The players are going to change significantly. So it seems like a great model of onboarding scouts who, who are new to the profession or to the industry where you can go do all the evaluation that you would do as a typical area scout. And then you can watch those players progress and, and kind of be tutored by the scouts who have been doing it for a long time or your regional cross checkers or people higher up. It seems like a perfect way to add more scouts to the industry and to really have a, a robust way to train them and have them learn on the job in a way that isn't going to directly impact the, the results of your draft because you still have several years to watch all these players and for all your cross checkers to get looks. It seems like a no brainer to me if I was in charge of a department and could had the financial resources and the backing of whoever was in charge, I would want to throw a ton of underclass scouts into, into my organization and have them run around and, and help cover areas and see all these events that, that you're going to be seeing Ben over the next few months. It, it seems like a, just a great way to mesh the the new schedule with, I mean, what we love to see at baseball America, just scouts on the ground, actually doing these evaluations and not being replaced by TrackMan and Rapsodo and in synergy. Yeah. Like I said before, I would, <laughs> I would absolutely hire more scouts if, if I were in the position with a, club to be able to make that decision where yeah like like we're saying if you're an area scout you, you've got to focus on you, you can't just go running around during the spring seeing underclass players yeah, you just so many have, of these areas are huge not. and and you have so many schools to see and when you think about the relief pitchers that you have to see getting the looks on those relief pitchers is incredibly challenging and you basically have to sit on a college team for an entire weekend sometimes just to get one look at the relief pitcher who you know you need to have a report in or a follow in on and that takes a lot of time and when you when you stretch that out to all of the colleges that could be in your area which have been getting bigger and bigger for the most part for most of these teams like baking in time to also hit on an underclass or even a 2024 high school player in the season it just becomes very unreasonable when your primary focus is the current year draft class, like you just don't have time in the day or in the schedule to do that. Or go see the U S college national team, which is playing before the draft starts. I mean, <laughs> or go see the Cape Cod league again, which is playing before the draft starts. You just, you're trying to split your time in so many different directions or, or try to go see like Owen Kellington, for example, last year who, who, um, you know, got he drafted to Vermont. Yeah. Drafted yeah. out of very rural <laughs> Vermont. I mean, how much, you know, he was committed to Yukon. He, I think, you know, area scouts in the Northeast knew about him, but you, you just, 
how, how many looks are you really going to get at him before? And, and how does draft, this change? You... Just thinking about another Northeast guy, Trajan Fletcher. He reclassified, was a main hitter mm-hmm. who his season started late. So all of a sudden, a player you think you've got a full year on to to get to know and really bear down on, he's reclassed now. So if you didn't get those looks as an underclassman, you really feel like you're behind the curve. Uh, and he's all the way up in Maine and you have a tiny window for when their season starts. And even when it does the competition he's facing, you're not going to feel comfortable with, with how you're projecting a hit tool. Like it just makes it a lot easier if you have that foundation of underclass looks already and you're, you're just much more ahead of the game. Yeah. Also, I just, I really enjoy watching uh, Max Clark and Walker Jenkins play. <laughs> I mean, those are uh, I, I don't, from no secret that those are the, the top two guys on our 2023 uh, high school list. Um, Are there any equivalents on the 24 list or no, is it too early to get a players of that caliber in your mind? Not, not of that caliber, but that have separated themselves, I guess I should say. No, I mean, I I think you make a a fair point too, that it's, you know, those players are a year younger. I mean, you can just see the, just the difference obviously in physicality between um, you know, somebody like Walker Jenkins or Max Clark compared to the top players in the 2024 class, where I think it's more wide open and, and you can make a, a pretty good case for, for the top player um, among, you know, 10, 12, maybe more players in, in that class. Whereas, you know, Jenkins and Clark to two outfielders, Clark is from Indiana. Jenkins is from North Carolina. Um, I think have really separated themselves and are are potential one one picks in the twenty three draft. I mean, Max Clark is, um, you know, f- five five tools that all could be average or better, and some of them are going to be uh, plus if if not plus plus. Uh, he very 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 rarely swings and misses. Uh, he has outstanding back control i think there's power in there uh he he certainly shows it in batting practice but in in games it's more of a hit first approach and then uh really um i'm not saying he's drew jones in in center field but very good instincts and and speed and and a strong arm in in center field so you have he doesn't have those center field bloodlines ben so it's really he uh, does not can't ask but it's it's um i mean just you know athleticism tools premium position i mean i I think it's probably the best pure hitter in the class at least if we're just talking about bat to ball skill so top of the lineup plus defender potentially in in center field um and i i think he's just i i think he's a candidate to go one one but i i think walker jenkins could be too. I mean, if you want to make a case for him as the best hitter in the class, I can see it. He's more of a, uh, just a physical animal. I mean, he's like six, three, two Oh five, something mm-hmm. in that area, strong athletic. He, he's going to have more power than Max Clark. He could be a 30 plus home run middle of the lineup type guy. And he has, you know, good strike zone discipline hits well in games, uh, plays you know good defense now in in center field he's just so big and physical that uh ultimately it, it might be more more right field but um you know you have two guys i think who've really um separated themselves as kind of the the elite 
guys in in that class right now. Yeah, I'll be really curious to see how those guys kind of slot in and how the industry views them compared to like a Dylan Cruz and a Jacob Gonzalez on the on the college side because it does seem like we have some really exciting bats um, to look forward to in the 23 class. But um, Ben, I, I was just looking um, on Twitter while you were talking because I wanted to see if there was anything that came out with the CBA kind stuff. Of, JJ, sorry, I, I was listening to you, I promise. Yeah, J- thanks. JJ, JJ tweeted that this year's MLB Rule 5 draft is canceled. So everyone on Twitter is now wishing him condolences. And I just feel like, <laughs> oh no, I'm so sad for him. <laughs> oh no. So yeah that's a bummer but um that one i don't i'm I'm not i mean obviously there's look the, the rule five draft is good for us at baseball america so i i recognize that but i i don't quite understand the argument that they should cancel the rule five draft this year i i, I think they should they should still have it um why do you know why it's not happening? I, I would normally just ask JJ this, but I'm not gonna message you. I, I think what the if I can steal man the case of the executives who with clubs who said to um that they should cancel it is that what normally that you're you're making the decision in November and the draft is in early December. So now with it being pushed back so close to the season, you know, teams are going to have potentially more information to uh, than, than they normally would leading up to the rule five draft uh, or it's, it's just so close to the season or, or there's so many other things that are, they have to deal with that. They don't, you know, the rule five draft is, is such a minor thing um i think easy there jj's gonna be listening to this (laughs) or or i think one of the other arguments was was what that oh we didn't we didn't realize at the time that there could be a lockout or or, or, there was some argument i saw that was (laughs) it was was so absurd this is your steel man ben dang well i I just didn't i didn't find any of these arguments compelling like you, you didn't you didn't think that potentially this contentious labor uh, uh, situation that's been brewing for years could could lead to a work stoppage and a delayed rule five draft could potentially happen but but again like this so the, i mean the rule five draft is a benefit for the players i did see it get spun somehow as like oh well this would uproot players or, yeah, yeah this is only up, a good thing for the players who are taking yeah, it would the uproot them to yeah to <laughs> guess what they league. want to be uprooted to that major league salary thank you very much yeah in spring training and then potentially to a, a major league roster spot i mean so, be, really tough really tough to have your life disrupted to be on that mlb roster <laughs> yeah particularly when you're not even on a 40-man roster now and you're still probably making <sighs> yeah 10 12 grand but again who who is fighting? Is is the union going to fight? No, we still want the rule five draft to be in place because who benefits from the rule five draft? It's not players who are already on forty mm-hmm. man rosters. It's players mm-hmm. who are not on the forty man. So um, it doesn't surprise me. I, I but I I think I, I think they should have had 
the rule five. Yeah. Ultimately, like I, I don't think it for you know for baseball as a whole, like I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Like the the rule five draft is is in reality not that impactful. Obviously, we do see success stories from it. I mean, Akil Badu and yeah, it's uh, certainly a niche uh aspect of of all of this all that's yeah, going on today but it, it does take away a a a benefit for um you know for players but again it's a benefit for players who are not currently union members who are not currently yeah. on a 40 man yep and we've come full circle with that ben we started off excited and now you have me a little more uh disappointed and everything and i know jj is out there somewhere lamenting that he can't be on this podcast disappointed as well um, I feel like I really want to just dive into everything that's been going on so I can get a better grasp of things now. Is, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to mention for our listeners before we sign off here? Um, and I also have some, some draft updates I need to get back to work on as well. But um, yeah, anything that we didn't touch on that, that you want to mention or anything that you want to plug? Yeah, we got a lot of, like you said, we got a lot of draft updates on the site. We got your stock watch on, on some players trending up, a lot of good draft buzz new 2023 draft list 2024 draft list um 2022 is is getting updated too so yep and um, then the college 23 and 24s will be coming out after that as well um and then maybe we can talk about some some merged underclass draft lists that would be fun i also wanted to plug jeff's dynasty 1000 that dropped which is just insane to me um but but jeff has been working a lot on the on the fantasy space for us matt jeff and I dropped a podcast talking about our Dynasty Startup League, the Baseball America League, um, that is happening with, with writers and some readers and subscribers. Um, so if you're curious in just Dynasty Baseball, I would check out that podcast and Jeff's list of uh, 1,000 players that he has ranked. It's current prospects. It's college prospects. It's open universe. Very much a, um, a list catering towards the craziest fantasy baseball players and i'm i'm sure plenty of people who listen to this podcast also fall into that group of people um so check it out it's just a daunting piece of content for me and when he when he showed it to me i was like wait you did what <laughs> but definitely check that out um in addition to all the college content that we have um a lot of podcasts going on just a lot of a lot of things moving in the baseball world and in the baseball america world um, so there's plenty of content for really whatever area of the game you're most interested in at this point. Um, and Ben, unless you have something else, um, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for rating and reviewing the podcast. Um, for Ben, I'm Carlos. So long, everybody. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Presented by T-Mobile, 
the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today.